And we're live. Welcome, everybody. This is the Reality Czars podcast, and we are hosting tonight Nate and Thomas, the Paranoid well, what American. Up? That's me. Yeah, I slept on my own name, Paranoid American. What up? <laughs> and we got Sal the Agoras back on. What's up, brother? How are you? What's up, guys? How you guys doing? Dude, fucking killing it. Busy as hell, tired. Uh, my teenager's turning 16 tomorrow. That's fucking nuts. That's a con- that's an accomplishment in and of itself nowadays. Having a teenager. How long until you're a grandpa? I yeah. did. Uh, we uh, we already had a scare. So scary. <laughs> <laughs> scared to be a grandpa. Come yeah. on. At this early, yeah. <laughs> we put it away right now. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm pro life, so we have to keep it. So it was just, <laughs> I, I, fuck, man. I don't want to be a grandpa this young. Not this young. Well, how you been, man? What's new? You said you're working on another book. Last time you were oh, you were just about to put out that book, and that was fucking awesome. It's Tell been us. that long that I've been on. It's been a minute, dude. Oh, we yeah, gotta change that. So this is this is an author's copy. That's why you have this gray band here. But this is the I put this out in November, December, something like that. Uh, and this is just like uh, the revisionist take on American history, the true story about American history. I sort of like run through it all, like from Washington till the present day, like the no bullshit story and the, the story you're not going to get in public school. And I didn't, I didn't think there was anybody else who had ever like put the whole story together from start to finish. So that's why I wanted to get that out. So that's, um, it's been doing really well. So I'm happy with that. Um, Hell yeah, dude. Hell yeah. Sold, I mean, over got to be cl- oh, close to or over a thousand copies now, which is great. Nice. Um, yeah, and then uh, actually, while I was writing it, I was researching like the like the, the World War One, World War Two era, and as part of the research at that time, I don't know if you guys know um, CJ Kilmer from the Dangerous History podcast. Yep, love that guy. Oh my god, what a great freaking podcast! Brilliant guy. I love his show, and uh, I mean, I listen to it religiously. And uh, he had this one episode, I don't know if you called it, about like World War One propaganda. And I was listening to it for research. It's like a five or six hour long podcast episode. He goes hard, man. Dude, it's a behemoth. I mean, like, you know, if you read this whole book, it would probably be like the same length. You know what I mean? But like, he had this whole episode on World War One propaganda, and as part of it, he had, and I'm giving away the whole premise of the new book, but that's all right, because you, you guys are friends, and the audience is friends. Um, but he had this like little thing on uh, this piece of World War One propaganda. It was a book called Christine, published in 1917, and it was like a fiction book. And I'm like thinking to myself, man, that's really interesting. If you take it from like 1906 to 1917, there was three books that were all fiction books. The Jungle uh, by Upton Sinclair, uh, um, Philip Drew, administrator by Colonel Edward Mandel House, who was Woodrow Wilson's chief advisor, and this book, Christine, that CJ had mentioned. And they're all fiction books. They're all written within 11 years of one another. And they were all like taken uh, by their audience. They were all taken to be nonfiction books. And they were all highly influential uh, of like leading to the next like moment in the progressive era. So I was, what I did was I, I have this new book coming out called, I'm going to call it three books that change the world. And it's essentially like a quick little rundown, like one chapter on each book. And, uh, it's, I'm basically doing like a a history of the, of the progressive era. And, 
that's basically the premise of the book. Three books that changed the world. It's the history of the progressive era. It's uh, it's almost done, and um, I'm happy with it. I think this is going to be my last history book for a while. I'm going to go back to like counter economics and like you know how to like run guns and smuggle dope and stuff like that. So like back to the, my roots, you know. Dude, but, this is the time um, to do it because like we're watching the American Empire crumble. And people need to know what counter economics is. They don't. They don't know they need the agora and how badly they need it. Dude, I Wild. get so many requests for like, like, a, like a people want me like they want like a counter economics book or like a like a crypto anarchist kind of book. And I'm like, all right, I got like like five books on the top of my head. I got to like get through. I've got like other projects. I want to like get some classes out and stuff like that. And other e-commerce projects and stuff. And plus I'm tied up with the stuff I got going on now and managing it. It's just one thing after another. There's not enough time in the day, you know, you know, I know <laughs> I'm trying to do all kinds of dumb shit. I work like 60 plus hours a week. I got a one and a half year old. We got this fucking podcast that we're putting a lot of time into. And then in the meantime, I started doing ghost hunting, which has been a lot of fun. <laughs> nice. That's awesome. We just put out uh, our second documentary, our part two documentary on this paranormal investigations. The first one, we were at this old like uh, Masonic lodge that was like an orphanage and then an old folks home for the Masons. And dude, there was some serious ghosts there. It was weird as fuck. And now we have people literally hitting us up. I think we've had over like a couple dozen people saying like, come on to my property we have ghosts. We need help. <laughs> like they're trying to make us the Ghostbusters, dude. Like, we need dude, a theme song. I know <laughs> dude, it's it's wild, dude. I'm not kidding. We're actually gonna go check out uh, this lady. She owns uh, like I don't even know what you call that, like an axe throwing range. And so it's like this big property where they do all this stuff. And um, anyways, it's supposed to be haunted as fuck. This dude murdered his wife. And now they're seeing apparitions of this woman and she keeps asking for help. And mm. it's, it's wild, dude. And so this lady's given us free range of a property. We're going to do an overnight investigation. We're going to like camp out there and we're going to try to like, like get down and figure out like if we can help this lady. You got more cojones than I do, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> when, nice. I, when, when I, when, when I was start, a kid like, answering you, through the spirit box and they start like saying things that are See relevant. Ya. I just asked them a question and they're like, and they, and you're like, what the fuck? <laughs> I grab the Bible and I just tuck and cover. That's <laughs> it. I, uh, when, when we were kids, we grew up next to like a, like a mental hospital. We used to like break in and like explore and stuff. We would find like x-rays of like crazy people and just like the most disturbing content you could possibly imagine. But like, I imagine you're doing something similar, though. Dude, it's it's absolutely nuts, dude. We're, yeah, we're going to any place that people allow us and then maybe a few places where they don't allow us. So there may be some uh, uh, entering some property um, extra legally. I don't know what's a good word for that. That's not too incriminating. We're going to be uh, <laughs> having some fun. And, there, dude, there's like old history out here. Uh, we're going to be checking out like the old Oregon Trail, like where uh, Lewis and Clark and I was going to say Pocahontas. It's not <laughs> Sacagawea <laughs> out here. And uh, so like, dude, there's an old pioneer graveyard that's old as hell. And our buddy has a hookup over there. So we're going to go and check it out. And I love that kind of stuff. I love that sort of like history. 
Yeah, dude, there's a lot of history to it too. Like the last place we were at, it's called the Witch's Castle. And it's this like, so it's in the middle. Portland is still kind of wild a little bit. Like there's this huge, huge park called Forest Park. And it's enormous, dude. Acres and acres of just pure wilderness. And, and homeless people. Oh, dude, there's a lot of hobos out there. Yeah, yeah. I mean, acres and acres of hobos. Yeah. yeah. So, but it's mostly hipsters. It's mostly hipsters walking their dogs because they don't have kids. And you can only tell the difference, yeah, between the and... between <laughs> the the pocket dogs and the Starbucks cups. That's how you tell the yeah. difference. True. Exactly. Uh, but we checked out the spot, dude. It was like this stone castle that was built in the 1930s, and there's a lot of stories about it. Like the property is weird. Like it had been owned by this dude. And this dude, his daughter married one of his workers, and he didn't like it. And so he picked up a shotgun and blasted him in the head and killed his, I guess, son-in-law, but he didn't recognize it. And then he blamed it. He said his wife was a witch, and she had bewitched him. And uh, and then there was a serial killer that was active in Portland murdering people in Forest Park right in this area and was like, dude, it was pretty sad because, like, most of them were, like, you know, junky homeless women. Uh, like mm. prostitutes and stuff. But then he started like stealing kids. There were a 15 and a 12 year old little girl. He like killed, like it's some dark shit, dark energy. Uh, we were out there navigating and trying to see if we could find more victims, see if we could like trying to communicate with them. It was, it was pretty intense, dude. See, like once, once <laughs> kids get involved, man, it, 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 it makes me up. question my, my adherence to the, the, the nap. my opposition to the death penalty yeah oh yeah 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 i mean that is one of those hard things that libertarians we have to like wrestle with because we always say like i don't want the state to have the power to put someone to death but then also when i where i kind of talk with that is like if somebody gets caught red-handed just no questions no courts just to pull it to the back of the head like if you get right, right. Trust red-handed, who do you trust like, about getting red-handed do you trust the I video know. footage it's, that could be tough. doctored do you trust the eyewitness that could have an incentive like it, it's such a, a strange area to be hardline on right it's like it's it an is. impossible litmus test it's sort of sort of my my sort of line is do you admit guilt like do you admit that you like raped and killed this little girl like if you say no then okay we'll give you life in prison but if you admit it if you tell me yes i raped and killed like this little girl then all right, then, you know, feed him to the dogs at that point. You know what I mean? Like, he admits it. There's no the question. The guilt isn't in question. The always going to be to, yeah. The incentive but then do you trust the like, admission? No, do it. <laughs> yeah. Right, right? that's the whole thing. Because it could easily turn into an Inquisition-style admissions where it's like, all right, fine, put Being me put out of my misery. Question. Like, or, I only right. have so many yeah. toenails you can rip out. I did it, you know? Right, right. Or it could be like somebody wants to commit suicide, so they like have the state sponsor it and stuff like that. There's just all sorts of that's why privatize it. Just privatize everything and then like you make the deal with your own insurance company. You know what I mean? Like you, you work it out on your own time. You <laughs> it know? depends on what plan you're under on whether or not you right, get the uh, right. lethal injection. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. <laughs> It uh, looks like here uh, you didn't pay for the the premium, so we're just gonna kind of uh, exile you out into the desert. Service. Yeah, you'll just like slowly wither away and starve. Like no, know. but looks like so here, I according guess to your plan, you get the death the penalty. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, sorry, feet first, man. Yeah, pure Rothbardian baby. Well, so so you uh, so you you started out talking about your previous book, which I haven't read. I'm not familiar with that. 
and you're talking about a topic near and dear to my heart american history and sort of like the origins of it so i would i don't i don't need an entire summary of the whole book i'll definitely get a copy and check it out but uh tell me like what the most shocking thing is that maybe changed your mind going into it about our original founding fathers and maybe like the american revolution is there anything specific about like the very founding that upset you to your core at any point um you know there's a a number of things i would say the one thing that stuck out to me was how um how quickly moneyed interests sort of took hold of the government like before the constitution was even a thing uh robert morris and uh his his financier friends had sort of uh gotten together and sort of um colluded to sort of bring about a more centralized form of government they did that with alexander hamilton and they spent the the majority of the 1780s doing this and that's when they we finally they succeeded and we got the constitution that we have today passed the articles of confederation the states seceded from that agreement and they joined the uh the, the new constitution that we have today and i was really surprised how quickly it took place like you would think like while Jefferson was alive, while Patrick Henry and Franklin, all these guys were still like, you know, influential and still like fresh in the public's mind that, uh, you know, the financial interest would have less influence, especially when they were so keen on preventing it. Like Jefferson, that was one of his big things was preventing moneyed uh, interest from sort of influencing the federal government. And it happened right under his nose. And of course, that just sort of happened throughout American history up until today. I guess uh, it's really easy when you're talking about the founding fathers and the things that they were writing and debating about to think of that all in the abstract as if they were talking about some academic uh, future America. But it was likely they were it was they were politicians of their day talking about things right. affecting them of the day. But since we look back on it, it feels like it's this long drawn out thing that they they didn't have like a direct impact in which yeah they're they're way more dynamic than we give them credit for. No doubt, no doubt. And they, they sort of, um, you know, there was they, they how, how valuable they were varies like from one to the other. Like the Alexander Hamilton, Alexander Hamilton, as far as I'm concerned, I could do without him completely. But like Sam Adams, he was great. Like Ben Franklin was, was great. Like those guys were great. But, uh, you know, it's just like where, where you time. stand on Walden. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, see, like the thing is, like they all like it, it, it all depends on, um, it's like any other time in history. It's like right now, there's good guys and bad guys. Like Thomas Massey's good. We have good guys and bad guys. But the, the point is, though, that they sort of got lucky because they were at the founding. So, like, Washington is becoming, like, he's become, like, a monument. Like, Jefferson and Hamilton, all these guys, they become, like, uh, perpetual. They become, like, a stone, you know what I mean? Fixtures in American history. So, you know, it's just sort of uh, luck of the draw sort of you know what i mean but do, do you think those early presidents we ever had anything close to what you'd i guess call like the philosopher king like um because i guess that's sort of washington not not to a t but he was kind of sold as this uh this re, you know relenting or or almost like he didn't necessarily want to be president and i don't know if that's just part of the lore or if that's actually part of it because that's an aspect of a philosopher king is usually like i don't want that job and it's, those are the people that you kind of need to have the job right it feels like everyone now it's like they all want the job funny enough washington was i don't want to be too harsh on him but he was kind of dumb 
Be harsh, he dude. Be harsh. He, he, he was the only founding too father who didn't. Wouldn't you, asshole? Fuck that guy. <laughs> he um he was the only founding father who didn't have a classical education. He was very embarrassed about it. He was he sort of um you know he married up, and uh, I don't know. He he was a smart guy. His his um. I guess I would say his biggest weakness, Washington's weakness, was in trusting Hamilton. He sort of looked at Alexander Hamilton like a son, and he allowed that relationship to sort of influence him, much like Donald Trump allowed Jared Kushner to negatively influence his presidency, right? It's sort of like the same sort of kind of thing, like he sort of like deferred to him a little bit too much. Um, and that was sort of his downfall in turn in many ways, the bank bill, the you know, whiskey rebellion, um, all sorts of stuff, taxes. Hamilton was a nightmare for this country. He was sort of like the, one of the first progressives. And again, he was working for the bankers the whole time, or at least under their influence the whole time. And that was sort of, he laid the, the groundwork for, for the next generation of uh, crooks in like the mid-1800s, the early mid-1800s, like 1830s, 1850s, even like uh, when like Lincoln came around, those guys ran on Alexander Hamilton's American system, right? That's what he called it. It was the American system. It was like high tariffs, a central bank. Like he wanted all these different policies in place. And if we look today, it's that's those are the policies that we're beset by today. Well, I, I got to ask because you're you're talking about Hamilton working with the bankers. We're talking about the late 1700s, early 1800s. And one of my favorite classic tales is how the Rothschilds funded all sides of the Napoleonic Wars and, and other sort of situations like that. Is there any direct connection between Hamilton and the, the kind of like international banking families by name? Or is there is it more vague than that? Well, you know what, the way I don't I don't tie them um, back to like the present sort of generation of bankers. But mm -hmm. the way I sort of like the common thread that I sort of tie in the book is that there's always been some sort of moneyed interest behind U.S. policy. And it was always the bankers. It was, it was Robert Morris in the early republic. It was uh, John Jay uh, uh, in, in the Civil War time. And then it was Rockefellers and Morgans. And then it was the sort of, you know, the, the uh, institutional w Woodrow Wilson and the, the Jekyll Island Club. and Right, right, right. And, and even today though like today like it's all sort of bled into the the council on foreign relations um the trilateral commission and you know once you start naming names and you start naming institutions people look at you like a conspiracy theorist but nobody doubts that money influences politics and and, and you know electoral you're just not decision. allowed to tie it to a specific name right That's the line you can't cross Exactly, exactly. If you say bankers, everyone agrees. Yeah. But if you say right. this banker, then everyone's like, whoa. <laughs> Conspiracy theorist. Yeah, yeah. Right. But if, if the truth is, if you look back on it, all of these people have, and especially the bankers, and this, this elite cabal, these cabalists is the word I use in the book. That's what they are. Um, they have always been behind the, the worst and most um, transitional moments in American history. Like Robert Morris was behind that push for to like to get rid of the Articles of Confederation, and in like the Civil War, we had moneyed interests like collude to like finance the, like Lincoln's invasion of the South. And we had like I don't know if you guys are familiar with like Cecil Rhodes and his last will and testament, but like how that sort of bled into the Rothschilds and the Rockefellers and and all that nonsense. And it's just like the Fabian you know, it's just, yeah, exactly. So it's just how deep down the rabbit hole do you actually want to go? You know.
all the way I down, dude. Yeah, I want yeah. to keep going until we hit water. <laughs> yeah, right, right. And on on this topic too, I'm really curious um, on what your research and your own personal impressions. But even today, right, Freemasons get the brunt of like they're in control of everything, and I and it seems like the early presidents absolutely were. If they're going to part of some kind of club. It might have been the Freemasons, maybe until the anti-Masonic party and then the, turns into like the Whig party. And then it kind of fizzles out a little bit and turns into a social club. But today, how much power do you think Freemasons have? And in, in case you say not all of it, I'm curious at what point did like they pass the baton and who did they pass the baton to? Dude, that's a good question. And you're asking the wrong guy. I don't really know too much about the Freemasons. In my, I mean, I know that a lot of like presidents and a lot of people have been tied to various like secret societies, like the Freemasons, also like the Skull and Bones, and, and well, stuff like the that. American Revolution was basically planned in Freemasonic lodges across the country. Right, right. And we wouldn't yeah. have been able to do it without uh, Ben Franklin, that dirty, smelly French Freemason. They got the French to help us. See, you guys know more about it than I do. I've always see, I've always tied it, but the one group that I feel like you can, you can always concretely conclusively pin the blame on all the time is the bankers so it's like whenever somebody's like you know what group or like is it the, like skull and bones is it like uh uh you know the this the group or that group i'm always like i go back to the federal reserve i go back to the bankers every time the cabal all the time but you yeah. you're, you might be 1000 percent right thomas i'm curious do you know of any direct connections at all between like the Rothschilds and freemasonry or like the bavarian illuminati or anything like that were they ever like tied into secret societies like the Rothschild banking cabal i can tell you but i have to see the secret hand signs first before i'm allowed to divulge any of that no that, that wasn't it bro <laughs> bang <laughs> no. no i mean honestly the the connections between the Rothschild directly from from my amount of research where i try to like take everything with a grain of salt and i like to, to hyper focus on the things that have real connections it seems that jp morgan may or may not have been some kind of a proxy for rothschild money so yeah. when the federal reserve comes into being around 1913 you know shout out to my homeboy woodrow wilson you just come back uh but but that kind of allows the rothschild money to come into the u.s and form the basis of the the central bank and federal reserve now it's hard to pin exact names and numbers everywhere uh because of proxies that's the entire reason that a proxy yeah. would exist so well, that's see, about that's, the closest that i i can um speak to that a little bit because on my in my research that's sort of i mentioned like the last will and testament of cecil rhodes and like that um i don't think most people realize how actually important that is how important that document is because he sort of it sounds crazy you guys might think i'm crazy maybe you guys are familiar with this i don't know but well, a lot fine, of people buddy. feel crazy you're in crazy town so i mean if really if you don't believe me if you guys the audience guys don't believe me listeners check it out for yourself the last will and testament so he basically says um we want to bring america back under control of england like the old days and uh he establishes a secret society for this purpose and it has two branches one in europe and one in america and the one in europe is going to be ran by the rothschilds and the one in uh america is going to be ran by the rockefellers and the morgans and i mean that's exactly how the 20th century played out i mean that's that dichotomy is still with us to the, to this day well, and, and the Rothschilds did active gold fixing up until, I think, the 1980s or, or something. Very, very recently. Uh, they got caught in the LIBOR rate a few years ago. 
know? Well, I mean, but this is like officially on the books. This isn't like in a shadowy room, you know, behind whispers and accusations. They literally would meet daily and set the price of gold in the morning in a little room. And the guy that was writing the notes and calling the meetings, his last name was a Rothschild. And that happened up until the, the end of the, the 20th century, essentially. Yeah, like just like like a few years ago, the London inter interbank operating rate, they got caught. There was a big scandal. They like I don't know if there was a guy's last name was Rothschild or whoever, but like the bankers like who who operate the LIBOR, um, it's like one of the big like central sort of like uh, trade central like banks that like they used to like trade between from one bank to another, but they got caught rigging the rate to like suppress the price of metals to prop up the the fiat currency and like of of who things behind that the cabal the the bankers of course. What a great topic for yeah, the night before Easter, too, about how much the bankers suck, <laughs> you know? Man, it's interesting. What do you think is going on right now with, because, uh, man, who are we talking about that with? I think uh, maybe that was Ryan Christian that we were talking to. Because we've been having interviews at the butt. I, I don't know who you're talking to last about this. But as far as what's going on with, like, uh, with what's going on with bricks right now. So, like, you see, like, in the East... And like, I don't know, I guess I'm just calling it the East. They're all like setting up and they're having their like thing going over here. And America is like, you're watching us like economically really starting to falter and fall down. And and whoever it was, it was Howard Lakeman. That's who we were talking. We were talking to, uh, do you know Etienne de la Boite uh, squared? Do you know who I'm talking about? Awesome dude. I know. I know the Etienne de la Boutique. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But I, well, he, he took he took the the mantle and put a little, a okay. little two on there. It's Etienne like de la Boutique it. squared, great, brilliant guy. But he but his opinion, what's going on is he thinks this is a fucking game, basically. That you see like the East together, and you thing, and you see America starting to crumble a little bit over here, and so this is just like a prerequisite. Uh, like it's almost like a cold war kind of thing. Like you're, we're seeing them team up over here. So we have like the enemy that we're like up against and to oppose them. Like what we're going to have to jump to CBDCs. We're going to have to have that central <clears throat> centralized bank, uh, digital currency to be able to compete with the East. Because do you see them? Do you see Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa? They're all teaming up. And so we have to do this. Like, and I think that, I think he's probably right. I think that was a pretty, pretty fucking good insight because I think be that's honest. like the problem reaction solution where. I, yeah, I, go I ahead. Think that that's, um, I think that that's a little optimistic. Honestly, if it turns out so? that that bricks <laughs> sort of becomes the global standard, that will be better off than the way I, I actually think things are going. Um, I think, I mean, I, I don't want to sound doomsday, but this is my honest analysis, is that I really think that we're headed for World War III. I think that they want, they're going to induce another world war. For, the bankers are going to do this. Um, and there's going to be a global depression that goes along with it. And there's going to be millions of people that are going to die. I hope that I'm wrong. I pray to God that I'm wrong. But I can tell you, again, based on my research here, that they've done it twice before. And yeah the exact same patterns that we saw in world war one and world war two are being replayed right now, right now. The, I mean, to a T exact well, same patterns. Yeah, I mean, the great again. depression in the thirties, like right into world war two. And that's supposedly what saved us and pulled us out. Right. Yeah. That's, well, that's a fucking 
fascinating. I mean, like in 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 World War One, um, <clears throat> uh, uh, the 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 Morgans and and, and uh, Rockefellers had essentially financed um, Russia and France and England. So they needed to see massive returns on this. So they were really behind the scenes pushing U.S. congressmen and senators to get involved with these wars. And they were the ones funding their campaigns. Then in World War II, we have the same thing happen again, right? The uh, uh, Morgan was sort of financing the whole thing. Rockefeller was deeply embedded in the oil markets, and he was worried about Japan encroaching on the South Asian oil markets. So we have Morgan trying to go to war with Europe and Rockefeller trying to go to war with Japan. And everybody gets their way. Because why? Because they're the ones who are paying for the campaigns that congressmen and senators run. Today, we have the exact same thing going on. The banks are, again, financing the whole operation. So they need to see returns on this shit. And on top of it, they're the ones who are paying for Mitch McConnell to get reelected. They're paying for Chuck Schumer's campaigns. Who do you think is donating all this money? It's, it's Goldman Sachs lobbyists and, and Lockheed Martin and Raytheon and Boeing. These are the people that they're that they're beholden to, not their constituents. They're beholden to the warmongers and the bankers. And that's why I hope I hope that I'm wrong. I pray to God that I'm wrong. But when the warmongers and the bankers get their way, hundreds of millions of people die. And this time, and you know, <clears throat> World War One was awful because you had 19th century battlefield techniques being used with modern weapons. And then World War II, of course, was even worse because you had nuclear weapons. What's this one gonna look like? Yeah, I mean, World War One was fucking nuts because this was like around the time of like technological evolution and revolution, and people were like working with new fucking weapons that they had never used before, and and like because in World War One, dude, they were still using uh, Thomas. What the fuck are those? Those big giant balloons? You know what I'm talking about? They thought that those were still yeah. Gonna be, they thought those Zeppelins? were still gonna be, yeah. They thought Zeppelins were going to be a game changer, and they weren't. <laughs> you know what I mean? Well, then they, then they started. Every, then they like, started with the V2s going into London. Yeah. I mean, just yeah. Oppenheimer is just dropping V2s right into London. Well, and then, um, it, yeah, and then World War II happened, and then, like, people knew what the fuck to do, and it was even more dangerous and more crazy. And, yeah, you're absolutely right. And what I think we're going to see is, I mean, I'm really hoping, I mean, I don't, none of it's good. None of it's good. But, like, I have a son that's 16, and I'm, like, worried, you know, as far as, like, in a couple years, he's going to be, you Keep know, him I, away from those recruiters. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> well, know? he's not going to go to the military willingly. <laughs> I'm just worried about like them trying to do the draft or something. It would like, it would be the ultimate uh, teen rebellion. That's halfway of how I ended up in the military. It was like, don't go in the military. Oh, go in the military. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> don't tell me what not to do. Yeah, job, dude. My son hates the military. He hates the guy. He's already. I did too, bro. I did too. I, did too. I don't know what it was. It was yeah. it was like a flip. <laughs> But I wanted to ask Sal too if if you're I don't know any of this, but do you are you aware of any banking connections to the start of World War One, like the young Bosnia Black Hand Serbian secret society that kills you know Franz Ferdinand, which apparently is supposed to be the catalyst which kicks everything off. Do you have any ideas or opinions on like if the bankers influenced that, if that had anything to do with it, or if that was like a smokescreen, if that was like the false flag to point a finger to? That, as far as I know, that was sort of like a nationalist movement. The Serbians had long, long wanted like their own uh, sort of territory before that. And uh, <clears throat> I think there was like some sort of issue with the line of succession in Austria where they didn't want Ferdinand to take the throne. And they were very disappointed when he did. 
And when he did, that's when the sort of they they it got sort of violent. Um, as far as what the bankers' influence on that one particular action was, I, I don't know. But let's say that like it just it was just Serbia and Austria. That's all. It was just would have been another border skirmish in Eastern Europe, and it would have been you know there's been thousands of them. So the world would have forgotten about it. It would have just been like another like little you know paragraph in your history book. But of course, the English, the British had to get involved because they realized that, you know, look, hey, whoever, if, if there's a decisive victory and we're the ones to effectuate it, we get to redraw the map of the world in our image. And they got involved and things didn't go as well as they wanted. So then they started agitating for the U.S. to get involved. And that's when the bankers sort of stepped in because the American people did not want to do it. We had been non-interventionist for a whole history up until this point with the exception, of course, being the Norse invasion of the South. But other than that, we've been, we were a non-imperialist country, and the people had, had a proclivity for peace. Uh, like Woodrow Wilson's re-election campaign was the whole slogan of his, of his 1916 campaign was, he kept us out of war. That was, the, that was the slogan, that was the implied promise of his campaign. Less than six months later, he got us into that war. That wasn't because the American people wanted the war. It was because the bankers were behind the scenes pushing for that war. Uh, Morgan and, and, and uh, Rockefeller, this was like their peak of like influence at this point. They had just got the Federal Reserve Act passed. Like they were, uh, they were on top of the game at this point. And like I said, they lent like $500 million, I think it was. It was what J.P. Morgan alone had uh, lent to England and France. And like another like however many million to Russia. It's like they were in this deep, 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 deep. They could not they could not afford a loss. And the idea that we were going to remain neutral was like a joke, especially to the people who own the newspapers, you know. Well, and, and at this at this time too between like the early 1900s through 1930 or so, the Rockefellers were heavily invested in propping up um Germany and Austria's sort of like psychiatric foundations and all of the the medical research it was predominantly happening in the states and in Germany um and and Rockefeller right in the middle of that that was where Rockefeller medicine came from and all the standards and the schools and the diplomas and and every the certifications they, they're sort of like i think in the book the i think the analogy i use is like sort of like an octopus and they have like their tentacles just sort of reach into like every sort of aspect of like socioeconomic, like the whole like political society, the whole body, education, medical fields, uh, yeah, everything, oil, diplomacy, resource, yeah, yeah, energy, war, and you name it, all of it, and it's it's really been a detriment. And this is exactly what the founding fathers didn't want. They designed, they tried to initially at least design the government to prevent all this, and it it, it failed. And that's the sort of that's basically the gist of the American experiment. Can you pinpoint the like the day that it officially failed? Are we talking 1913 Federal Reserve? Was it before that? No, it did. I did actually. I'll, I'll actually I actually pinpoint the exact date here. Um, it was July 4th, 1862. And that I just want to make sure that was the date that um, July 4th, 1863. That was that was when Vicksburg, Mississippi fell to the Union Army. I don't know if you guys are familiar with that, but it was one of the most, um, that was sort of the day that the federal government conquered the states. That was when, because that was a, that was a turning point of, of Lincoln's war. That was when the American government realized the effectiveness 
of making war on, on, on civilian populations. And that, see, up until that point, the South was winning. The, the, the North was losing the war. And for a while, it seemed like the initial sort of decentralized form of government that the founders had created, it seemed like that model was going to prevail. And when Vicksburg fell, that's when sort of everything fell. Everything sort of sort of changed. It wasn't Gettysburg. A lot of people think Gettysburg was a turning point of the war. Vicksburg happened before Gettysburg, and Gettysburg was a result of Vicksburg. And it was really ugly. The, the federal government put um, the entire town under, under siege. Women and children were starved, shelled to death. I have there's uh, some personal accounts in the book that are just... It keeps you awake at night. You know, when I was doing research for this book, I was reading memoirs of people who survived there. And like they would like uh, the, to, the residents of Vicksburg had to dig holes into the side of caves to survive the constant shelling from the, from the politicians. They had to survive off of like uh, mule meats and like wild birds and stuff like that. And it was just it was really ugly. It was really ugly. But once they realized, hey, look, hey, if we kill a bunch of like kids and women, these people surrender pretty quickly. And then that's that's how the rest of the war went. We're just like that. It's pretty amazing what politicians are willing to do to other Americans. It's almost like they don't give a shit about us. <laughs> it's all about the money. It's all it's all no. about the you know what it is? It's about money. You know what it is about power. That's what it, it's really about power. So they don't want to they don't want to lose their grip on power. Yeah, like like the I can't remember was it Mayor Rothschild, but one of my favorite quotes, and it's you know, give me control over a country's currency and i care not who makes its laws i'm paraphrasing that right. roughly yes but yes. But, it's, it, but it's like the money is just the way to get to the power but the money's not the end all be all because they already realize that it's, it's it's funny money right it's just fiat currency that they're talking about and you know um it's funny you say because it, it sort of like bleeds into like you know once the banking sector was cartelized and it didn't start with the banks it really started with the railroads they were the first industry to be cartelized and then it sort of moved to like the meatpacking houses and then it became the banks and every other nowadays, every industry is cartelized by the state. I mean, even uh, hairdressers, you have to have a license to be a hairdresser. Sure, now. Yeah, you got to have to go to a cosmology school, right? <laughs> I mean, it's ridiculous. You have to have like you have to have like a permit to wipe your own ass pretty soon. I mean, it's insane. So it's like every industry has been cartelized and they what they they all saw how successful it was for the bankers, for the railroads and all those early, early sort of cartelists, they saw how successful it was and they just transplanted that model onto every other industry. And one of the big ones was the food and drug industry. And that's sort of one of the stories that I tell in this new book that I, that's coming out. Um, three books that changed the world is sort of how like uh, Harvey Wiley, who was sort of in charge of like the food and drug sort of uh the early sort of uh, incantations of the Food and Drug Administration at the Bureau of Chemistry in the Department of Agriculture, which would eventually became the FDA, he said, um, to get back to what you were saying, something to the effect of like, and he was just a, a glorified sugar industry lobbyist. He said something like, give me control over the nation's uh, candy supply. <laughs> and I care not who makes the laws or something yeah. like that. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? And it's like, and like, if you think about it, in a lot of ways, like look at what, like look at the the enormous effect the sugar industry has had on American society since he said those words, and a lot of it is because the food in, in food industry was so heavily cartelized. 
we ended up getting the food pyramid and the FDA, you know, they poisoned everybody a hundred times with, you know, the Tuskegee experiment. They just poisoned everybody again with this COVID stuff. I mean, it's like, it just doesn't end. So it's, it's just, it's very interesting how like you can like look at any sort of aspect of American society. And it's been like the state has just infiltrated it so heavily. It's been, it's had such a detrimental effect on, on the American people. You know, one of my early red pills, you're talking about the food and food and things like that. That was one of my early red pills too, is just once I, once I learned about how fucked the food pyramid was and that it was all bullshit and lies and that carbohydrates and grains aren't actually fucking good for you at all. And they put those at the bottom like you're supposed to have. That's like the most. Ten servings a day of bread? (laughs) What? Am I a duck? So they literally are giving you the opposite. (laughs) Yeah. You could almost flip it upside down. Like meat, eggs, and cheese are supposed to be the most important. And so to me, it's so wild to me that people are still so asleep. Like Like Joe Bizzle just put out his food pyramid or whatever it was. And like... Fruity pears were better than eggs and bin. And you're like, what the fuck? <laughs> it's insane. Like, oh, dude. <laughs> it's crazy. It's crazy. But these people are still in charge. They're still writing our laws. And even worse, um, no, I don't know too, too much about it. I just saw an article about it before. But I guess they're putting like livestock is now clear to be injected with M- mRNA by like the USDA or the FDA. So now it's like you there's no escape from it at this point. It's like like no matter what you have a hamburger you want to hear you're something gonna, you're worse? gonna get the shit in your body. Yeah, no we want to hear something worse though is they've been doing this to wild animals too. And they've given out over dude it was like a hundred million shots or something to like to elk to deer to so like there's hunters that think that they're doing the healthy thing for their family and they're going and hunting these wild elk and bringing it home, and then they're eating mRNA vaccines. <laughs> they're they're trying to get you in every single place, Ugh. and then you hear them talking about how they're going to put it into agriculture as well. They're like, "Well, you'll be eating your salad, and you'll be eating your vaccine." And, <laughs> and it's, you, it's they nuts have that too. quote. Oh, go ahead. Go, sorry, I'll well, finish your thought. Okay, I there's just that quote from uh, uh, Bill fucking Kill Bill Gates, right? Where he fucking said. This is how we'll stop vaccine hesitancy by putting it into the food supply. <laughs> yeah, and you're I like, saw you're that. <laughs> I saw well, that. The, but and and I think Bill Gates was a good a good um, segue to this point is that when we talk about like the medical technologies and and the things that they're just like forcing on people, it's almost like we're pretending the technology doesn't advance dramatically every decade. And that as two or three decades go by, you're like, Oh wow. You know, the way that we used to think this works, we were way off. You know what I mean? And it's fine when it's technology because you just dismantle those computers and you rebuild the software and you rebuild the hardware. But what happens when like, it's ingrained in, in your DNA or the DNA of your livestock or your crops. You can't look at it and be like, oops, uh, 30 years ago, we thought we knew what that did, but apparently we didn't. It feels like it's, it's too late for a lot me, of dude. that. It's such a wild experiment to do. I like that. W- the other one that people aren't talking about as much is this lab grown meat. They just cleared it so that this is now in stores. So there is lab grown meat now available in stores. It's generally recognized as safe or grass that's what they call it and so the fda approved it and here's the thing that's really fucked 
So there was this lady back in the day. She was like a test subject. Okay. She had a, some sort of like tumor, a cancerous tumor, like on her ovary or something. And these cells just would never die. They called them like forever cells or something. They're like rebel cells that would not die. And they just kept reproducing very, very quickly, this specific cancer. So they took that design because they're trying to figure out a way to make these cells reproduce like quickly so that they can make this like cost effective. And so they're basically reproducing like they're using these like forever cells. They're basically making cancer, like chicken cancer. And growing that at rapid rate. I think I, think I did hear something like that. that. That's like, it's so fucking awful. They're literally feeding us cancer yeah, cells. But does it come with the Rick and Morty Szechuan sauce? It Maybe <laughs> it does, man. I don't know. But it's fucking, it's so crazy that these people are like, yeah, that's a great idea. We'll just do that and we'll give it to people. And without testing this, like, like giant tests. FDA is just like, yeah, just throw it in there. And then you think that the that the FDA cares about you? <laughs> that's the thing. That's like that's what's mind-boggling to me. It's like you're gonna tell me we didn't have the FDA. The people <laughs> who did Tuskegee, the people who uh you know who, who gave you the COVID vaccine, you're gonna trust these people, the CDC, you're gonna trust MK them. Ultra. <laughs> yeah, MK look, we can go on and on and on. I mean, it's just the list never ends. Like it's insane to me that you would trust or politicians in general. Like they can't, they can't even, they're not capable of writing a budget. You want them to like oversee your social security and your healthcare, like your kids' education. Like, hello. It just, it, I know, I, I know, I know, like for like people who are, who are, you know, who are, have already considered these ideas, it's, it doesn't sound, you know, it's not like a revelation anymore, but like to me, it's just still every time I think about it, it's mind boggling that there are some people who just still don't see it. Yeah. So one yeah. of one of the pro arguments for the FDA, for example, right, is that some company, some private company comes out and says, we've got this pill that cures this thing. And not only does it not cure the thing, but it causes all kinds of issues. Or you say we've got, you know, this great um, milk, this this pure whole milk. And they sell it and everyone that drinks it just dies from it. You know, they get, um, you know, E. coli or whatever. And the, the, the sale is that, well, the FDA prevents that kind of thing from getting widespread. And it, and it shuts those businesses down and it enforces recalls where there wouldn't be any other incentive to recall this stuff. Um, so and, and I understand that's like the weakest argument, but that is the, the leading argument for the existence of the FDA in general. So is there Which, like a, a weight rate to like knock that down? Yeah, yeah. So that argument is completely based on propaganda. It's 1,010%. It's all propagandized by the state. That entire narrative is a fiction that's been put up by lobbyists, essentially. And it's actually I, I, in the book that I'm that's coming out um, on the chapter that I, I talk about, like the regulation of like the food industry, the meatpacking industry, and like Upton Sinclair and stuff like that. Um <clears throat> It's actually the opposite. The FDA, like there's been more cases of listeria and like deaths and E. coli and stuff like that since the FDA came out that have been reported since before they came in, the FDA was in charge of this stuff. So it's like if you actually like look at it, like like before, like the politicians were in charge of regulating the food supply, the food supply was healthier. Things got worse once we put them in charge of it. Once the when the market was in charge of it and it was like, all right, well, you know, we each have um, 
we're each selling tomatoes and you know everybody who buys my tomatoes gets sick well guess what pretty soon i'm not going to be selling tomatoes anymore right if everybody who buys my tomatoes gets food poisoning nobody's going to buy them anymore i'm going to go out of business but now what happens is you have the government come in and they put on their, their false stamp of approval and they give everybody uh, this sort of false feeling of security. And then what happens is, and there's multiple cases of it, um, people like hundreds and of people dying of, uh, you know, tainted lettuce and tainted meat and seafood. And, you know, it's, it happens all the time. There was just one in like November, like it just last fall, there was a bunch of people who died. So like the idea that the government is going to protect us vis-a-vis -vis this certification is nonsense, number one. But number two, when they do uh, impose artificially high safety standards, what that does is that sort of prevents a new, uh, new participants from entering the market, new entrepreneurs from coming in and saying, hey, I want to sell tomatoes too. Well, I can't because I can't afford to you know, go through all of the washing and, and whatever sort of safety techniques that the government imposes on me. All this stuff costs money. I need equipment. I need startup costs. I need more capital. And I don't have, I don't have that money. So it sort of prevents innovation. It sort of um, retards growth in the industry and stuff like that. And yeah, the whole the whole idea that that this that the state that licensure is a sort of prevention against quackery. Take a take a quick drive on the on the New Jersey Turnpike, man. Look at all those licensed drivers, and they are all quacks. I promise you. Yeah, buddy. I mean, Thomas loves asking the fucking um, the devil devil's advocate questions. So, dude, we have Walter Block coming on, the king of the oh, man. Dude, I'm so pumped because <laughs> the smartest Walter, person that I've ever met. Dude, Walter's the best, dude. I love that guy. I'm Brilliant. so excited about that, dude. He's you know he's one of the um, last living students of Mises or something like that. Like he's one of the last people to attend like like actual like lectures from Ludwig von Mises. That's how oh, freaking yeah, old school classical that guy is. Brilliant oh, yeah, guy. Dude. Yeah, dude, he was like, dude, he was in the room with Ayn Rand. He was in the room with uh, Murray Rothbard. He was like, because he used to be a, he used to be a Randian. Well, I love yeah. that shit, man. Yeah. Such dude, a there's pictures guy. of him with of like, history, man. there's, yeah, exactly. There's like pictures of him with like Murray Rothbard, Friedrich Hayek, Ludwig Lachman. And it's like, dude, how are you still like this, like so <laughs> relevant and like astute and like he's still he's Dude, brilliant, sharp he's still sharp and fucking in mean, a and like a dick in the sweetest, funniest way possible. I love uncompromising. Yeah. Un if you ask Walter him, he Black's will not. The there is no. He's not going to bend his his opinion to comp to you know uh, make anybody feel better to appease anybody. Uh -uh. He's going to give it to everybody straight. I love it. No filter. Yeah, he's no, going to yeah. tell you. I love it, dude. He's always like under investigation at the school he works at for like some comment that he made <laughs> to piss off somebody. You know, well, this is why slavery actually could right. be illegal. And then people like, what? <laughs> it's true, but he's right, and you can't argue with him. They can just get mad. But he's like, <laughs> did you ever see his? Uh, he, he did an interview with Sam Cedar, um, who's just uh, intolerable communist guy. Sam Cedar, he's got this podcast, it's just hard to watch. But Walter Block goes on there, and Sam Cedar is like, he's like, like a it's like the lion's den of going in like the, to like the liberal shows. He's supposed he's known as like a tough host, you know. And as soon as I saw Walter Block go on, I'm like, oh man, this is gonna be like fire. And Walter Block handed him his ass 
like halfway through the show, he was like admitting to like then like he had like Sam Savior had like rejected the minimum wage and stuff like that. Like <laughs> it was it's a really good show. If you guys have a chance, definitely check that one out. Hell yeah, dude. Hell yeah. Dude, I'm pumped. I, I got to meet Walter Block once. It was pretty cool. I went to a Mises event in Seattle and I got to meet Tom Woods and I saw Bob Murphy. Uh, they did a Contra Krugman episode. Like I got to see it live there. And oh, stuff. that's like, awesome. Yeah, it was a lot of fun, dude. But like I live so far away from you guys, like because they're always doing shit down like in Georgia and shit. I can never make yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When are you too? When are you gonna move down here? Come on, we gotta get you out of you're 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 in like the epicenter of of the shit storm, the, Dude, of the wokeism. You know what? They love it. The people <laughs> that live in that area and that that hate the area, but also love the area. Yeah, Dude, it's so you know nice. what it is though. It's and I've never been there, but from what I understand, it's like you do have the shit libs, but you also have like the beautiful sort of idyllic woods and like isolation, and you can you can still kind of get away from all the nonsense when you want to. You can, man. Like I moved forty five minutes like northwest of all the crazy bullshit. Okay, like, that's good. they're all fucking Trumpers and and like rednecks out here. Like the rest of the state, they call them Oregonians. Like they're <laughs> they're, they're just a bunch of rednecks, dude. Like no, I was gonna say, do you have them. like do you have good? Yeah, are you are you contending with like? portland style gun laws and, and taxes and stuff sure yeah they do they try to do all those things uh but like the county that i'm in like we are a rural county and like they never even enforce the the mass mandates they never enforce the lockdowns like uh we had like a constitutional sheriff is what he called himself like there okay. was like six constitutional sheriffs in in like in different counties throughout like rural oregon that were just like Fuck you. What happens the, if you get popped by like the state troopers though? I don't know. I it doesn't happen. I, I never did, luckily. Well look at but, um uh, the sheriff had more power in their county. Like if you were in like Portland and you're trying to walk into a store without a mask on, like if if Karen doesn't hit you in the face, <laughs> then Antifa is gonna hit you in the face. <laughs> like, like there's somebody that then the cops will get involved eventually. You're gonna get hit in the face five times. They'll get involved once yeah. you start defending yourself, and then they'll get involved. Yeah, literally. Ugh. Yeah, they didn't. They didn't have that here in Florida. There was none of that nonsense. Oh, so you're you're a fellow Floridian too? I'm in Orlando right now. St. Pete, St. Pete. Okay, man. Yeah, we gotta, they don't know we gotta get up is. and do some black market shit. <laughs> Let's do in it, Graham. In my <laughs> yeah, of course, of course. I'm always down. Hell yeah. I've always been. I've been kicking around the idea of like starting like a Tampa agorist sort of network kind of thing. One of these days, I'm gonna get around to doing. It's just like I got so much shit on my plate, you know. That's what stopped me, dude. Yeah, I was like, I was head of a chapter of a liberty movement out here. And was like trying to get guys together, it, dude. Trying to get libertarians to like participate is like it's like trying to herd cats. Like yeah. trying to get so we like we it was in the middle of lockdown, so we'd like go to a bar and we'd like drink beers and take our masks off and just like talk liberty and have fun and like and it was cool. It was cool for a minute, and like I made some like some lifelong friends out of it. Which Good, was cool. But uh, I mean, dude, then I got married. We bought a house. We moved out of the county, you know, and it was like, and then I was like working. It's hard to keep that stuff together. People ask me, what's the best way to connect with other like-minded people? And I think the, the clear answer is agorism and counter-economics. Do business. Yeah, because then them. you have – exactly, exactly. Then you – yeah, Because exactly. then it's like it's that connection can't be broken. We're working, yeah. Right. I need what you have. You have what I have. And, like, we just – we work together. 
It, it, that is, yeah, you're absolutely right. And, and compare that together. Compare that with with politics, right? Whereas you look at the Libertarian Party, and you have people like if you and I, we both want to be treasurer of the Libertarian Party. We got to talk shit about one another. We got to say how awful we are. We got to convince everybody to hate the other guy, and I'm better, and here's why. And and it's just in, in agorism, it's none of that. You don't you don't like politics sort of pits libertarians who otherwise would agree with one another and get along well well wouldn't in agorism if i make shoes and you make shoes wouldn't i start talking shit about how your shoes suck compared to my shoes yeah but see that's great though because that's honest competition like that's for productivity whereas in politics it's like like we're, we're, we're both like of us of talking like, shit about each other is giving each other free advertising like we're like we're getting people like <laughs> right. I, I find it so funny with like these people getting all upset about like the tranny on the beer I'm like, a Budweiser hasn't had this much free advertising in years. Like Budweiser's killing it right now. <laughs> it's ridiculous. It's absolutely insane. I mean, and then and now uh, everybody's got got the tranny on everything. He's on everything. He's on like, dude. Uh, he's winning it. Like whiskey. I know. He's on shoes. <laughs> you got to deal with Nike like he's Tiger Woods. I mean, I don't know. It's you know, it, but you know dude, what? They, I gotta they, they created this monster too. <laughs> They created this monster, though the the you know the the woke and the anti woke and, and the culture war created. It's a product of the culture war. Yeah, it, it is, and it's also a distraction. Like, why would companies be paying that much money to be putting him on a can? It's not for the bread and butter, like redneck people that the people that actually drink that piss water. Like, they're their bread and butter. They're people that actually buy Bud Light are not the type of people that are going to be stoked to see a tranny on a beer. No, 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 not at all. I don't, you know, who hasn't stirred up much controversy on Think Natty Ice, man, the cheapest thing that you could possibly get at the store, anyways. I was gonna say, you don't see like PBR doing that, Mickey's or some Schlitz or something, right? What's Schlitz been doing? Yeah, there's no, there's no trainees on the Schlitz can. What's what's Mad Dog been doing? What's Night Train been doing? Actually, I bet you if you look into Night Train, they've probably got some weird shit going on. But it's just, it's just, it's absolutely crazy. I mean, obviously, you know, they're chopping kids' dicks off and giving, you know, radical mastectomies to healthy young girls nowadays. Yeah, fuck, man. It's, it's, it's just gotten out of, it's just wildly gotten out of hand. I don't care if you want to be, you're you're an adult, you want to cut your pecker off, God bless. You want to chop your tits off, you're, you're a, a, an adult person. I don't recommend it. I think it's a bad idea. If you ask me my opinion, I'm gonna say don't do it. But if How I does that work me, in a libertarian, in like a truly agorist, a libertarian a sort of scenario? Libertarian society. Once we've established, like, once you're at this age, you're at the like whatever that is. So let's say 21 is the age of like adulthood. Then you have free autonomy, complete control over your own body. You own yourself. If you want to turn yourself into a fucking dragon, do it. So but before that, though, let's say have, you're 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 20 and you want to do it. There's so then there's going to be laws and it's it's weird, man. Because I think that you're going to have to have. Uh, that's where I come back with, uh, uh, like, goddamn it, what's his name? Anyways, just like like, like, if, like if you can scrape together you're have 30 to have grand communities where in this covenant community over here, they're more left liberal, they're more like wild and whatever the fuck, you, and you're going to have to let them live the way they want to live. That's so that's the that's only means if, have if your kid can somehow scrape together 15 grand and drive 40 minutes to a community that accepts it, then I mean, that's, it seems like the same problem. It just shifts around a little bit. No. So, 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 so Rothbard. So here's what Rothbard says. Rothbard says that the parent child relationship is, is a trusteeship. 
and that the parent is, is sort of obligated to provide for the best interest of the child. And if he doesn't do that, if he fails to do that, he, he can and should be held responsible for any damage done to the child. So if you um, let your seven-year-old son chop his dick off, you should be held responsible for that, right? There, you, there, there should be consequences for that. Now, the question is like the, the, the whole thing like sort of hinges on when is adulthood? When, at what point is somebody considered an adult? And what Rothbard says is when you leave the house, when, when you get up and go and you're able to live out in the, on your own and you, you know, you can get a job and pay rent, then you, that's on you. If you can do that at 17 or 16 or 21, then that's God bless. That's when you're an adult and that's when you should have. So if you run away from home at age seven and just live on the streets but survive on the streets does that mean that you can now legally do this well i i, I think i think that's sort of where the trusteeship thing would come into contact and it's like again like you'd have to sort of mitigate like the specifics of it but like and, and would that be also and uh, we're in hypothetical land right now but but i'm thinking in hypothetical land what if like like the kid and the parent both are like it was great there was nothing bad about it does still external society say no we think that was bad so we're going to punish you even though both of you seem to be yeah, fine with that's it. The hard we part. say it's not right. And that's where I say there has to be like covenant communities where like in this community, if they really, if that's the morals and ethics that they believe in, I, I'm, do we go to war with our neighbors because they're allowing their kids to do that? I don't, I say no personally. Uh, as a pure, <laughs> as a pure private privatization agorist, yeah. you can ask Walter Block because he, he's probably got the right answer. Yeah, Walter has see, an answer for this. You know, he's got the right answer too. <laughs> yeah. The way I see it though, is a lot of this would be mitigated by insurance companies, right? So like that kid would have it would have a policy. You would have a policy and, and the neighbors would have a policy. And if my, if that policy for the child stated no harm shall come to this child's penis until you know what I mean. Like, you know what I mean. And then, like, you chop his dick off, then you're in trouble. And if he says, "Oh no, I wanted my dad to chop my dick off," well, buddy, it says right here, you ain't chopping your dick off until you know you leave the house at 16 or something like that. And uh, the only rebuttal that I would give you is that, like, we are seeing corporations uh, at this point, and probably insurance companies and even the medical industry now saying that no, that's totally fine. Oh well, you know, <laughs> you know, I mean, but these, yeah, well, that's the thing. These insurance companies are sort of fascist arms of the state. They're not yeah. truly private in any sense of the word. There's, you know, they're owned by, you know, bankers, of course. That all goes back to the initial fucking enemy, Goldman Sachs and Wells Fargo. These are the people who are controlling the banks, and they're, but they own everything else. If you actually look at all the subsidiary companies that they own, they own everything, and a lot of the insurance companies are the same way. I mean. Um, Geico yeah. was what government employees insurance companies started by Buffett and uh, you know a lot of these insurance companies I think started off as sort of you know, arms of the state but yeah. in any in any sense you get what I'm saying though yeah and I mean and just in my personal opinion the most important thing to do is if you have a child raise your child correctly uh, and just do your fucking best with your own fucking child that's I mean that's, that's kind of where it comes number down one to me. number like, one. Because, dude, I cannot control the way my neighbor raises their kid unless no. I want to be another tyrant myself. And, right. it, and it sucks, dude, because it like, dude, there's unless there's like active, like full on abuse, then I don't feel a way that like, there's a reason for me to intervene. And, and then people always ask, like, well, what is that line? What does abuse look like? And if they are like indoctrinating them into a cult, you know, and then they're like, well, is Christianity a cult? It's well, sort it's of transgenderism like, a cult? 
because transgenderism well, it's, it's like, kind of seems like a cult to me. Like, it, what did it's the tough, dude. what did the Supreme Court say about pornography? It's like you know, I I'll can't know define it, it, but I it. but I know it when I see it. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's like yeah, yeah. I know. I, I I I can tell when you're disciplining your child versus when you're abusing but your I, child. You know, I mean, I mean, honestly, that that might be a bad example for me because that is the ultimate. I'm leaving myself a loophole to just like I have the power and I'm going to retain the power by saying I alone have the discretion to tell you if you're doing something right or wrong. Let me wait and see and I'll let you know if you just committed a crime. That feels like the ultimate horrible loophole to give someone just absolute discretion like that. In terms of what? And like in, like to give hope. Like without without like having something codified where where it's like I'll know it when I see it. That's the like I guess from a, from a different perspective from like no, I agree. Land, right? If someone comes up and tells you, like, when you're creatively working on something, or you're like writing out a book, right, and you're writing you're writing something for someone else, and you're like, well, I don't know what I want, but I'll tell you what I don't want, and once you do the right. thing that I do want, then I'll let you know. It's like, oh, this is never going to end. Like, this is just I mean, going to go terms on of like, forever. I mean, in terms of child abuse, I mean, it's it, it's it's pretty cut and dry. It's like, you know, don't hit your kids. Is it though? And... I mean, I, this isn't a Walter Block yeah, segment. I mean, twenty twenty three, like if. If my kid, if me raising a baby, because that's what they're doing right now. There's a <laughs> groups of people that are raising this child to be completely blank. And I don't know if you're a boy or a girl. <laughs> I don't know. And to me, I find that to be horrific child abuse. Uh, <laughs> but you brought up a good point because that that yeah. same family that you might be pointing that finger at and saying you guys me are raising my kids to love Jesus. It, well, exactly. That, that it, I mean, I, and yeah, hundred percent, dude. It's, we it's laugh, tough. but that is that is absolutely. That's a why true I go dynamic. back to the covenant communities. It's like my community over here is we have our fundamentals, our ideals, our morals, our ethics, and these freaks have theirs, <laughs> and like. I don't know, man. You just kind of have to live and let live, or we're gonna fucking shoot each other again. So, so basically, just city states everywhere. City you states. Know what though? Yeah, but you know what though? Just I feel like it's easier. Just just keep your hands to yourself. Don't hit anybody. Don't fuck with their property. Mm-hmm. And that's it. That's it. And that includes yeah. kids. That includes kids. Includes your wife, your neighbor, the people that you never met before, strangers. Everybody. I th- just mind your business. I think that system breaks down though when when ninety percent of people mind their business, but then ten percent of people don't. Now all of a sudden, the people that are willing to just be dicks, they kind of have an upper hand unless there's something there to shoot them back down and enforce. You know, no, no, no. Don't be a dick, you know. Well, in a, in, a, in, a, in a truly privatized society where people do mind their business, there is that sort of voluntary mechanism there. That's that sort of the whole sort of private court system, the sort of uh, insurance company model. And, you know, the, Bob Murphy does a great job laying all that out, by the way, like in a really detailed fashion. Anybody out there wants to check it out. It's called chaos theory. But like you can handle yeah. that in a way yeah, that's completely yeah. voluntary. You don't need um, initiatory violence to uh, sort of navigate those issues. I do feel like a a return to that or this kind of environment that we're describing would absolutely reinvigorate Freemasons again, because now that becomes this de facto national standard where, oh, um, like you might not have like a national degree or some kind of national license, but you're part of this club. So anywhere you go, like you kind of get a pass and you kind of get an upper hand if you're applying for jobs or if you want to make a trade, even if my shoes are comparable with your shoes, if I'm in this extra club, now you buy my shoes because we're both in that club. 
See, I don't have a problem with that necessarily in the sense that like, oh, you're part of some club and that club is respected and we're going to give you a little, you know, you're going to, your application is going to get bumped to the top. It's of the a Michelin line. star. It's essentially yeah. a Michelin right, star. Right, exactly. Exactly. But now to somebody like me, if I see it, I'm saying, oh my God, this guy's affiliated with the trilateral commission. No, I don't want him in my company. You're fired. So it's going to like, in that, in, in sort of in that way, the, the market will sort of meet these issues out. And it's like, eventually the people will be ostracized. Who should be ostracized? That's, you know, by the way, ostracism has a function in society, right? We're supposed to ostracize people who violate social norms for a good reason. Mm -hmm. And the fact that we aren't allowed to for social justice reasons and, and you know, golly knows what else, that is a really negative detriment on society. But ostracism used to work. It used to work wonderfully. Back in the Greek days, every 10 years, they would ostracize a politician. Let's bring that back. I mean, let's 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 do something like that again, where we just sort of vote for one guy to send him away for ten years. <laughs> that, I love this idea already. We have an inverse election. Instead of electing who we want to yes. run the country, once a year we elect the one person that should get the hell out of politics. <laughs> how long for ten years? If we drop Joe Biden off in the woods, how long <laughs> yeah. would it last? Oh, forget it. If you're not Listen, around that... to hear him die. <laughs> <laughs> no, that is abuse. That's, that's elder abuse. Yeah. See? Uh, I mean, you could make an argument that what, what uh, whatever he's going through right now is elder abuse. Oh, dude. Yeah, keeping no him there. Yeah, for sure. Well, well look, brother, look what they did to John Fetterman. I mean, yeah, that dude. was... That's he's disgusting. not the same person. Do you see those pictures? How did his head shrink? It, like they're showing the the Bert and Ernie version of him now. Like it's a joke. Dude, I I, like, I seriously stand by this, but I think that they're just tweaking the the AI generated algorithm, and someone <laughs> accidentally put like a comma in the wrong place, and it started <laughs> rendering his ears out in different positions. Well, you've seen the AI has a hard time with hands. It could be like the government's AI can't do ears or something. Yeah. You know. <laughs> It, it connects the earlobes and then it disconnects them again over and over. <laughs> and that's, yeah, right. That's why Joe Biden has a different, like, face every time he's on television. It was a different mid-journey prompt each time, yeah. What a joke. Well, brother, we kept you, uh, we're a little bit past an hour, brother, so we're going to let you go. Um, cool. Why don't you tell our audience one more time where they can find you, what's the name of your new book, when's that coming out, all the fun stuff that people can find you at. Sure, yeah. Um Sal at Sally Mayweather or um, just Salvia Gorist. The book that I have out now is The American Experiment, What Your History Teacher Didn't Tell You. Uh, definitely check that out. The new one that's coming out is going to be called Three Books That Changed the World. Um, I might add a little subtitle, but that's what, that's the working title now. Probably another month, month two, something like that, I'm thinking, and it should be out. I'm going to do it a little differently. It's going to only be out on my website, just audiobook and ebook this time. I'm not going to go through Amazon. Just to see what the difference is, a little test run for myself. Um, other than that, 3dprintergobur.com to uh, buy 3D printers, pay with crypto to avoid having to access KYC payment platforms, and uh, Agora Threads for all libertarian, anarchist, and freedom apparel and merchandise. Fuck yeah, dude. Hell yeah. Thomas, you got things to plug? Yeah, when, when is this, Aaron? uh probably a week and a half okay so at this point uh i've just released uh joel thomas's eat music video 
So I'll be posting that. I mean, by the time you're hearing this, I've already re um, put out the exclusive release on my YouTube channel. But follow me on YouTube at Paranoid American, and you can check out the Joel Thomas music video that I worked on with him. It's all AI generated except for the the singing and the music, but all the visuals are AI generated. Uh, and then we were talking about Federal Reserve, uh, and I've actually got my time samplers issue one here. Um, this is where it all started. This is where Paranoid American... The publishing company kind of gave birth to this very first comic and this is about uh lex and cow these two brothers that that use psychedelic time travel to go back and witness the uh the founding of the federal reserve at jekyll island awesome. and here we got and and actually here's um, Abra um um alexander graham bell uh, with his huge tuning fork and we also uncover <laughs> that he was a raging nudist uh, but yeah, it's got like it's got uh, skull and bones in here. It's got like everything you could imagine. It it covers harp, V2K, um, oh, wow. silent weapons for client wars, all in this first issue. And there's there's five of them. So if any of that stuff um, interests you, if you're even listening to this podcast, you should absolutely have at least picked up this first issue and see what we're all about. Hell yeah, I love it, man. All right, gents. Thank you again so much. And Sal, we're going to have to do this. And I think we always say this, but let, let's uh, let's do this sooner than later. Uh, yes. Let's not, let's not make it whatever it was, five months, six months. Let's do it sooner. Yeah. All right, brother. Appreciate you. You got it, guys.